Welcome to this God-inspired message from Shofar Christian Church. Enjoy today's message. May you experience the presence of our Father and may you grow deeper in your relationship with Him. Yes, Father Lord, thank you that we can come before you and bring your word before you, Lord. Thank you, Father, that you've so clearly, Lord, laid out for us what you expect of us, Lord, who you are, how we are to relate with you, Lord, in your word. And yes, Lord, there's certain things, Lord, that isn't so nice to read, Lord. Things that confront us, Lord, that convict us, Father, as we see the fallenness of man and the holiness of God. Whenever those two things, Lord, come into play, Father, we pray, Lord, that with that we would also remind ourselves, Lord, and see through Scripture the grace of God with that, Lord. Holy and loving God, having grace on sinful man, Father. Yes, we pray, Lord, that as we read through your word tonight, Lord, that you will come, Father, and you would show us, Father, the truth and the beauty, Father, of who you are. The beauty of the gospel, Lord. The truth of your word, Father, and that we might have grace, Lord, given to us so that we can align our lives with the truth of your word, Father. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are here guiding and teaching us, Lord, as Scripture says, we have not received the spirit of this world, but the spirit of God, that we might freely know the things given us by God. And thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice on the cross. Thank you that you will come back one day to fetch your bride. And may we be found that day, Lord, singing holy, holy. It's the Lord God Almighty. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been busy with a sermon series, A Mile in the Shoes Of. We're going to continue with that today. Today we will be looking at a mile in the shoes of Ezra and Nehemiah, because it's long weekend, you know, with extra time and all. Look at two people. Just to explain to you guys, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, they were originally written as one book. It's one part of church history, and we have to read it together to understand what's happening there, to get the whole picture of it. And uh, there's a, a lot of other people that come into play in this passage as well. And just to quickly explain to you guys, it's really important for us to understand what happened in the time of, of Ezra and Nehemiah. These are the people that came out of exile as they were taken into captivity by Babylon, by King Nebuchadnezzar, because God said, you know, you have forsaken me, you've oppressed the poor, you've turned to false idols. Now I'm going to take you out of your land into captivity. And God raises up Nebuchadnezzar. He comes and he takes the Israelites, into captivity. And then Jeremiah comes on the scene and he prophesies and says, but they will not be in exile forever. 70 years. And God will do a mighty work and he will lead them back so that they can again be a nation, so that restoration can come and so that they can build up Jerusalem once again. And at this time, as they are in captivity, another prophet arises, Ezekiel. Ezekiel is with them in captivity, in exile, but he's not one of the prophets that comes back to Israel and prophesies there. Mainly what Ezekiel does is he's with the captors in captivity, in exile. And there's a couple of prophecies from Ezekiel that we have to understand that gives a little bit of context to the story that we're going to read. And I hope I can take you through the journey of mixed emotions that I experienced this week as I read through this passage and wrestled through this passage and just this part of the story. That's very interesting, with an interesting ending as well. And there's a, a lot of lessons that we can learn from these guys, but there's also clear examples that we should not follow. And we'll get to that in a moment. 
And so Ezekiel comes onto the scene, and some of the prophecies that we just quickly have to understand is the prophecy made in Ezekiel 34. It's not on the screens, but you can go and read that. And it's God saying that there will come a day, and he's speaking out against the shepherds of Israel, and he says, I will be a shepherd to my people. I will come and guide them. I will gather them. I will bring them together. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And two chapters later in Ezekiel 36, there's a prophecy concerning you know, what's wrong with us as man, and how God is going to come and deal with that. And he says, the Israelites has, have profaned his name among the nations that they were taken into captivity. And for his name's sake, he's going to act. We have to understand that as well, that God is acting for his name's sake. And then from verse 20 onwards, we read God saying, that I will come and I will sprinkle clean water upon them and they will be clean. I will remove the heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. And I will pour my spirit out upon them and that will cause them to walk in my ways. Renewal is going to come. Revival is going to spring forth. And that is going to cause God's people to walk in his ways and to obey his laws. Because the reason they're in captivity, the reason they're in exile is because they did not do that. They failed to do that. They physically did not have the capacity to obey God's law, to keep his standards. And God removed them from his land. But here comes hope. God himself will come and he will gather us. He will be our God. And he and we will be his people and he will come and bring the renewal that we so desperately need. And that is Ezekiel with the exiles. And then comes a first group of people that is sent back. There's three people, another guy with Ezra and Nehemiah called Zerubbabel. And he gets sent back first with the king. And God works in their hearts and we're going to look at that in a moment. And he sends back the first group of people. And with them, there's two other prophets. Haggai and Zechariah, they come with the first group of exile. And there's a lot of prophecies given through them as well. Maybe some, something that sounds familiar. I don't know who of you have heard people say, the glory on the latter house will be greater than the glory of the former house. That is Haggai speaking about the temple and the things that's going to be built up again in Jerusalem as the captives comes, comes back out of exile. That is what we read there. And then 60 years later, and these specific people, Zerubbabel, him and the group of captives that come, they come to rebuild the altar and the temple. And when we look at why God sends the people back and in what order they send them to do the specific things, things that he sends them to do, it's important for us to realize as well. If we want reform to take place, if we want revival to spring forth, what is the first thing that needs to be restored? The altar and the temple of God, the presence of God amongst his people. If that is missing in your life, there will come no revival in your family, in our nation. The place where God dwells. Luckily, the altar that is taken away by Jesus, single offer on the cross. And when we approach the altar of God now, we do so in thanksgiving and with repentance based upon the finished work of Christ on the cross. And that is the first thing that they come to restore. Sixty years later, the second group of people come and Ezra arrives on the scene and he comes to teach people the law of God. They went in exile, they didn't hear scripture, they don't understand the law of God. Reform needs to take place. They don't know what scripture demands of them anymore. And then 13 years later, Nehemiah comes. I think most of us know what he primarily came to do. He came to build some walls. All of the engineers say, Amen. Let's build stuff. Let's design stuff. And then as we look at these guys coming back, and specifically with Ezra and Nehemiah, the prophet that was with them, 60 years after the first group of people come was Malachi. 
I know you've, you've read Malachi recently, but not the most exciting book to read. And that is where we find ourselves. And it's important for us to understand these things working together. And that's about 440 years before Christ. Ezra and Nehemiah are coming on the scene to bring reform. And there's a lot of stuff that we can learn. But I want to ask us a couple of questions before we dive in. The first one is, Nehemiah is a bit of a more popular guy than Ezra. But when you think about Nehemiah, what are you thinking of? I gave it away a bit now with the building of the wall. But remember, Nehemiah is this guy who came to build a wall. And also the thoughts that we think about him, the sermons that we hear about him, the books that we read, the articles that we read. Something in the line of you know, bringing reform, lessons in the life of Nehemiah. How to be a godly leader, lessons in the life of Nehemiah. Because he did finish the wall and they did build it well and there was opposition and they went through all of those things. But in the big picture, the story looks a little bit different as to what they tried to accomplish. Ezra, anyone here that knows Ezra? And Ezra came and he came to teach the people who was a scribe, skilled in the word of God and in the law of Moses. And the last question that I want to ask us is, who here wants to see revival take place in their own lives, in their families, and in our nation? See some hands? Who wants revival to take place? So everybody wants revival to take place. Now, second question for all of us with an eager heart, passionate about revival. When was the last time and how often have you been imploring God to bring revival in your own life, in your family, and in our nation? And I think there's a, a mixed response, maybe in the hearts and in the minds of of us tonight, some with a grateful response, some with a not so grateful response. And the reason I ask the question is because we many times know what we should do. And there's a lot of times things that we realize when we reach God's word that's out of line in our lives. And, you know, the, the thing that we take is, we're going to try harder now. And it doesn't always work, but at least we know what we should want. But as we read through the story, I hope that we can soon discover that there's a right way to bring about revival and there's also a wrong way. And that's the title for tonight, Revival and the Heart. So let's read through it and see what we can learn. We're going to read from Ezra chapter 1 to Nehemiah chapter 13. I'm just making a joke. We're not going to read 23 chapters of Scripture. But I would really encourage you guys, if you want to go and read that at home, take you about two hours, two and a half hours to gently read through those two books and just to make sense of all the things that has happened. And we are having a long weekend now. So you do have the time. Go and sit back, read the story. Interesting story, and it's going to take you on a lot of up and downs. But let's begin. And there's a couple of things that I just want to highlight through the story so that we can make sense of it all. And the first is Ezra 1, verse 1 to 3. And it's the beginning of everything. And something that just stands out in this section of history is the sovereignty of God. God does as He pleases, and He predicts, and He turns the hearts of many different people to accomplish His will. And we read, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. And there we see the first guy that God raised up was Nebuchadnezzar. He is a different king and God is just working to do what he has said he will do. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord 
the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Isn't this an interesting passage of scripture? It's quite countercultural. And yes, we understand that Cyrus at that moment, he is in control of all of the kingdoms of the earth. But to send a nation back to its stronghold so that they can go and rebuild the place most difficult to capture if they were to rebel, that is a bit strange. And not only to do that, but to send everything with them. What do you guys need? I'll send it. I'll sponsor the whole renovation. I'll give you everything. The sovereignty of God on display. He does as he pleases. And why is this point being lifted out? It's important for us to understand in the times that we are living in now. God is still sovereign. And he still works all things to the counsel of his will. And he still puts people in authority and still stirs their spirit to does whatever he pleases. And whatever he has commanded. Important for us to note as we look at how revival takes place. And in this time, as they come back, Zerubbabel comes with these group of people to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the altar. And as they're busy building the project and they get to the foundation laying of the temple and they celebrate it, some of the older generation that remembered the first temple, that saw the glory of God descend, being with these people, they wept, they cried. Some people cheered for joy because they didn't remember the old one. But the people who remembered, they wept. And we read in the book of a guy, he says in chapter two, is this as nothing in your sight? You know, it doesn't seem like we are busy with anything important. It doesn't seem like much. And then in chapter nine, he says, do not worry. God says he's with you. Keep on working for the glory of the latter house will be greater than the glory of the former house. And the building and celebrations take place, but it's not quite that descending of them. The Spirit of God on them and the presence of God with His people. Kind of an anticlimax that takes place. And 60 years later, Ezra comes onto the scene and we see the same thing. Ezra 7, verse 12 to 13, and it says, Artaxerxes, this is a different king and God does the same. King of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven. Peace, and now I make a decree. That anyone of the people of Israel or their priests or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. And at the end of that chapter, Ezra explains to us why King Artaxerxes said that and why he made that decree. Verse 27 to 28. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors. And before all the king's mighty officers, I took courage. For the hand of the Lord my God was on me. And I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Again there we read, for the hand of the Lord my God was on me. The sovereignty of God at work. And he turns the heart of a different king to do exactly the same. And he sends Israel back with a host and a lot of things. And he actually says to Israel, and he writes a decree, that they're going to give them a lot of stuff. They're going to go beautify. I didn't know that word actually was in scripture. I didn't know that was a real word. I thought, you know, we millennials thought that up. But to go and beautify the house of the Lord. And if they're done beautifying it or bedazzling it, then anything that's left, he can do with it as he pleases. All of the gold, all of the silver, all of the things that given them to go and do what God has called them to do. Again, a strange thing that God stirs the heart of a king to do something like this. And then 13 years later, we see exactly the same in the life of Nehemiah. Nehemiah 2 verse 8 
So again, King Artaxerxes, same king, writing a letter, making a decree. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the walls of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. And again here we see God working sovereignly through the lives of many people. And that phrase there, for the good hand of God was upon me. Seen a handful of times in different places of scripture. But in the short passage from Ezra 7 to Nehemiah 2, we see it six times. For the good hand of God was upon me. Ezra and the people coming back and they don't even ask the king for an army to protect them. Because the good hand of God was upon us and he led us safely to Jerusalem. And we just see God working for them. We remember the prophecy. God is bringing about revival and he's turning the hearts of the king. Reformation is going to take place. This is a great start. God turning the hearts of the kings, giving them all that they need and they go up to go and restore the house of God. Even when it comes to the building, people are building together in unity with a single focus on God and his people, putting themselves second. Read in the book of Nehemiah chapter 7 verse 4. And then it says, as the gates were finished, Nehemiah ordered them to keep the gates shut because no house in Israel had been rebuilt. They've been there for years. Busy building the wall, building the temple, building the altar. Israel, they're teaching the people, but no one has started to rebuild the houses yet. What a kingdom-minded focus. God first, love for people. Here we have that slogan here in Segunda. Love God, love people, reach the world. They're working together with a singular focus. And it seems like the prophecy being made, really this people has a different heart. They learned what they should in exile. God is teaching them something. In the pressing, in the crushing, God made new wine. But it seems like this is truly great. And even with the spiritual reformation, something in parallel is taking place. Look at this. Israel 10 verse 1. Israel came back and he saw the people intermarried with the foreigners around them and people from different nations and they were not supposed to do that according to God's law and also just to tell us it's not because God doesn't want a different language or color or nation to come and mix with these people no it's not what God is speaking of any nation anyone from any different nation regardless of where he comes from or what he looks like or smells like could be a part of Israel if he decided to submit himself under the laws of God Yahweh, the God of Israel, he is now my God. Then you become a part of Israel. He's just speaking about the different nations that had idols, false idols, false gods that they prayed to. And every time when they intermarried with different nations, the people got led astray to false gods. That is why they say, do not do this. And Israel comes back and he sees that this has happened once again. And Israel goes and he makes confession before God. Look, look what happened. Ezra 10 verse 1, while Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women and children gathered to him out of Israel for the people wept bitterly. And here we see the people crying as they hear the words of God and they see how their lives are out of line with what God expects of them. Reformation taking place, people's heart broken, weeping before God. Lord, we didn't know. We're returning to you. And after that, they make a vow to separate from those people. They vow to God that they will not again marry people from different nations. Reform taking place. And the same happened after Nehemiah finished building the wall. Him and Ezra 
They teamed up together, built a platform, called the whole nation together. And Israel was busy teaching them from the word of God. And we read the same thing, Nehemiah 8 verse 9. And after Nehemiah taught the people, it reads, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Great reformation and revival taking place. At the end of that chapter, they read through scripture and they see that there's a feast of booths that they need to you know, keep as God commanded them, reminding them of how God led them out of Egypt. And the people start celebrating the feast of booths. Chapter 9, for a whole while, the whole of Israel gathered together and for a quarter of the day they read from the law and for the next quarter of the day they confess their sins and they worship God. Amazing reformation taking place. Revival stirring up. I mean, can you imagine that? It's not a couple of hours on a Sunday, but for all time, a quarter of the, literally half of the day, these people are spending reading scripture, confessing their sins and worshiping God. Amazing things taking place. And these people take it so seriously that they do the following. Nehemiah 10, verse 29. The people that have separated from the different nations and moved themselves to the law of God, as it says in verse 28, they do the following. They join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his rules and his statutes. That's quite a serious thing that they are doing. By a curse and an oath, they vow themselves, we will keep the law of our God. A great revival, a great reformation taking place. What a reformation. And the vows that they make and the oath that they make is primarily three things, but also to keep all of God's law. But they say, we will not neglect the temple. That's the first thing that we won't do. We will not neglect the temple. We will make it the centerpiece of all of Israel. Secondly, they say they will keep the Sabbath holy. They will not profane the Sabbath. They will keep it holy. Because a lot of these things were the reason why they got taken into exile in the first place. And the third thing is, we will not marry foreigners. We will not give our children. We will not let them take our children and marry them. These are the three things that we vow that we will not do. A great revival that takes place. And we need to go and do that now. I'm just making a joke. The, the story goes on. And it seems like all that we need for revival to take place or South Africa to come to the same point is for a president to be in our favor, a guy who knows how to build a wall, to mobilize a team, and someone to preach the word of God. Then we have revival. What do you guys think? Doesn't it sound familiar when we listen to the people of our day? What's wrong with the world out there? What needs to be done? Oh, the president, if we can just have a different group of people that is leading our country, that has favorable, favorable hearts towards our nation, towards Christians, then, surely then revival will come. We've just read it. Surely then revival will come. We just need someone. This is typical Afrikaner thinking. You know, we need a Delaray or someone. Then, 
If Nehemiah comes, then revival will take place. And we hope that if Wim Angus dies, that another one takes his place because the guy that preaches God's word to groups of people, he should also still be there. Surely then, revival will come. But unfortunately, this is not where the story ends. This would have been great. If this was the end of the story, that would have been lovely. Because I don't know who of you know how the Bible plays out chronologically, but this is the last book of the New Testament. Nehemiah. Chronologically. 400 years before Jesus comes. In parallel with Malachi. It's the two last books. And it would have been great if this is where it ended. And they wait until Jesus comes and Jesus comes on the scene and he says, blessed are those who have kept the law of our God. Let's build the kingdom together. Not what happened. I don't know if you've read Malachi lately, but also not that great book. That positive note. No, but it's a prophet addressing the people. And we don't know what happened to Ezra, but Nehemiah goes on a short business trip back to Susa. Back to the Persian king. And he comes back. We're not sure how long he was on this business trip of him, but anything between a year and five years. And he comes back and he sees the nation of Israel exactly where they were before they went into captivity. And the lessons in exile and the goodness of God that brought them back to their land looks like it accomplished nothing. All of the odds in their favor, all of the kings favorable to them. Yes, there was a little bit of opposition that they faced along the way, but never a real threat. People that wanted to distract them, yes. Stop the building process, yes. But everything worked out well. Everything in their favor. Great leader, great guy to break open God's word and the kings in their favor. Yet Israel back exactly where they were. And remember what they vowed not to do. We will keep the temple in good condition. We will not violate the Sabbath and we will not marry with foreigners. Nehemiah comes back and sees that they have violated that vow in every single way. And he comes back in chapter 13, the last chapter of Nehemiah. And we read in verse 11, So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? Again, the house of God is forsaken. Where is the prophecy of a guy? The later glory of the temple is not greater than the former. It doesn't seem like that prophecy has come to pass. Then we read in verse 17, Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is the evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Not only the Sabbath they violated, but they violate the law of God in every single way that they can think possible. Then we read again in verse 23. In those days I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Every single one of the vows they said to God by curse and oath, we will not break. A couple of years. Israel back where they were. Why? We have the land which we wanted again. Our hearts were never really turned to God. He gave us what we wanted and that is enough for us. And many times we, we do the same. And what do you think is Nehemiah's reaction to this? What does he do? After spending years bringing reformation and revival only to come back and find the people in the same place as the nation taken into captivity. I think it's something that we can go and apply in our small groups this week. But we read that Nehemiah did the following. Verse 25. 
And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. By the way, that is a joke. Do not go and try that in small group. Not something that we want to do. But can you imagine this picture? Nehemiah is so distraught by what he is seeing that he's literally beating people and as he's on top of them pulling out their hair, he's saying, them, swear by God that you will not do this again. Make an oath. I will make you make a vow again. But you will not do this again. And many times we do what Nehemiah does. We do what Ezra did. We do what the people did. And we see that there's certain things that's out of line in our lives when it comes to the word of God and there's certain vows that we need to make. And as the law's being read, we many times get that emotional feeling and we even cry many times. And we say, Lord, this time we're going to try harder. This time we are going to try harder. We're going to vow once again that we will keep your law. Only to see a couple of days later, a couple of months later, a couple of years later, that that is not the case. I've again transgressed. I've again forsaken the things that God has called me to do. And the book ends in this tragic way. There's six verses after this verse that we read here, left of the Old Testament. And that is basically him here telling the people why they should not marry foreigners. And at the end, he basically says to God, Lord, just remember me. Just remember that I tried. Just remember that I tried. At least... Gave it a go. And Malachi, running parallel with Nehemiah, addressing the priests, they have forsaken the wife of their youth, they are adulterous people, addressing the people of robbing God, not giving to the house of God as they should, the house of God forsaken. And a lot of other things, quite a negative statement. And then at the end, a little bit of hope. As Malachi says, I will send Elijah to you, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the sons. And the hearts of the sons to the father. And what happens after this? The 400 years of silence. I don't know if you know about the 400 silence years. Between the Old and the New Testament. No prophet. No word. No work of God being seen. But God is silent. For 400 years. This is it. But what about the prophecy? Where is the God who is coming to be with his people? Where is the hearts of flesh? Where is the spirit being poured out? Where's the glory on the house of God? What has happened? For 400 years, nothing happens. And the first voice that the people hear again is the voice of John the Baptist saying, Make straight the way for the Lord. And he says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Oh, how this is needed. Otherwise, reformation won't come. And Jesus comes on the scene and he preached, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now it's going to happen. Now hearts of stone will be turned into hearts of flesh. Now the spirit will be poured out. Now God is here and he's bringing his people together. I will be their God and they will be my people. And God comes and he brings that reform. And we read in Titus 3 verse 4 to 5 and we read the following. Showing to that prophecy of Ezekiel 36. It says, but when the goodness... And loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing 
of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Here's the prophecy being fulfilled. Here's the new hearts being given. Here's the Spirit poured out. Because the people didn't understand it at first when Jesus also came. Nicodemus comes to Jesus, part of this old regime. He knows about this 400 years of silence. He's seen how the revival ended up in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. And he comes to Jesus in John 3 and he says, Good teacher, I know that you are a man sent by God, for no one can do the works that you do unless God is with you. And what does Jesus reply? Truly, truly, I tell you, unless you are born again, you will not see nor enter the kingdom of heaven. There's something wrong in the heart of people. We've already established that it's not the conditions. Because when the conditions were favorable, the people still rebelled. God did not come to deal with external circumstances, but with the root and the core of sin. That is the human heart. A heart of stone that feels nothing for his Savior. And he says, surely I cannot enter a second time into my mother's womb and be born again. Nicodemus was a smart man. Didn't mean it literally. He's asking Jesus, but how can I? I'm an old man. I'm fixed in my ways. I have my ways of doing. How can I be changed? How can renewal come? And God says, that which is born of flesh is flesh, but that which is born of spirit is spirit. You need the spirit of God to come and revive you again. This passage here, Titus 3, that is what needs to happen. Then we see that renewal taking place. And then we realize that the glory on the latter house that a guy spoke of was not a physical building, but it's what we have here around us tonight. God's people. As we read in 1 Corinthians 3, we are God's building. Being built on the foundation that is Jesus. That's what we read in Ephesians 2. The whole structure being built up together for a holy temple for the Lord. To be indwelled by His Spirit. This is the glory of the latter house. God's people doing His work. And that takes us to point number one tonight. A mile in the shoes of Ezra and Nehemiah. The gospel is the beginning of and end of revival and reformation it's where it starts it's where it finishes it's not the gospel and it's not the gospel and a favorable government it's not the gospel and a great leader it's not the gospel and a great bible teacher no it is simply the gospel that impacts the heart of man because if the heart does not change revival will not come where does revival come in the hearts of every single man as each heart realizes person for person that Jesus Christ is Lord and the knee bows and the heart follows and revival starts to happen. See, we need to get to the root of the problem because many times we are blaming the circumstances around us and the people and the government, the lack of a great leader. And God says, no, that's not the problem. The problem is the heart of man. And many times we see something in God's word and you know, we tell ourselves, we're going to try harder this time. God says, that's not the solution. The problem is not that we do not do what God expects of us. The problem is that we don't want to do what God expects of us. The problem is not that you don't read your Bible. The problem is that we don't want to many times. The problem is not that we don't pray and worship and lift up God's name. The problem is that we simply don't want to sometimes. That is the problem. That is the root. That is what needs to be reformed. The problem is not that we do not go and preach the gospel to all of creation. The problem is 
We don't want to. That is the root of the problem. Otherwise, we will act like Israel, grab people by the head and beat them and pull it out and say, say this time you will go and preach the gospel. Make a commitment this time that you will read your Bible. Make a commitment this time that you will give yourself to a life of prayer. Just to find out that a week or two later, it's not the case anymore because I never dealt with the root. Jesus says in John 15, like I'm told two weeks ago, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Why don't we obey? Because we don't love God. Hard statement, but the truth nonetheless. Not something I thought up. We read in scripture. It confronts me as well. Because every time I don't want to, I have to realize that there's a certain area of my heart that the love of Christ has died down. It needs to be fanned into flame again. But here's the great news. God is not Nehemiah. God does not come and grab us by the hand, beat us, and say, try harder this time. He doesn't come and make us take an oath and vow ourselves to keep the commandments of God. No, that's not what he does. What does he do? He sends his son to come and die for us on a cross and show that this is how much God loves us. And when we realize that, what our scripture says, we can love because he first loved us. It's like Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14. The love of Christ compels us. Why? Because we have come to know that one has died, namely Jesus, therefore all has died. So that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised again. That is the gospel. That is where our hearts need to change. That is what we need to realize if reformation is to take place. It changes the way that I look at reformation and revival in my own life. It's not to set for myself a new rule or standard or new habit to follow. No. It's to look at my heart and to declare before God, firstly, that this area of my life, there's no love for you, Lord. That's why I don't want to do this thing. That is how it starts. Not by making myself do it now. By first realizing before God that my heart's firstly not in the right place. And to ask a sovereign God to come and do what only he can come and do. That is to come and bring renewal, Lord, in my life. Come and give me a greater revelation of who you are and of what you did for me on that cross. So that that can break my heart, so that I can see your love, so that I can love as well. That is where we start. It changes the way we confront the people around us with the gospel. Many times we see people in our own families and their lives are out of line with the gospel. And we also want to tell them, make this commitment. The problem is not with the commitment. Problem lies in the love for God. The root needs to change and it changes the way we approach the people out there. We are not called to go and give them a set of rules to follow, but to tell them about a God who loves. And yes, he's holy and yes, he will come to judge. But grace is extended so that you do not need to experience that judgment one day. If you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. That is the gospel message that we are called to proclaim. And while there's lessons to learn out of this story, and at the end it's a sad story because we see a failed revival in the life of Nehemiah and Ezra, we still ask ourselves the question, but what was the difference in Ezra's life? And we learned it now that there's a hard change that happened. And I want to leave us with the following scripture. The difference in the life of Ezra. Ezra 7 verse 9 to 
10. It says the good hand of his God was on him. And it also tells us why the good hand of God was on him. Why he did what he did. How, why he felt the way he felt. And it says, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Isn't that a wonderful scripture? You want revival to come if we can get a nation to do that. No change will happen. If a nation says, I have set my heart to study God's law, to do it and to teach it. That is revival. And as we go proclaiming the word of God, every heart that is set on God and hears these words, they will follow and they will bend the knee and they will exclaim that Jesus Christ is king. But to every heart that is still a heart of stone, that has not seen the glory of God nor surrendered to his grace, will simply continue as they have before. And I want to make us an invitation tonight to do this, to tell God, Lord, I want to set my heart to study your law, to do it and to teach it. But to do that, we need to realize the areas of our lives that is out of line with that. I'm not saying that all of us don't want to do what God has called us to do. It's not what I'm saying. And those who realize that there's areas of my life where I'm very passionate to follow God, thank God for that because that is the grace of God displayed to sinful man so that his love can come and change us, so that his spirit can come and empower us to do what he has called us to do. But if our life is out of line, let's draw near to a gracious God that wants to come and change. To say like David, Lord, come and restore the heart that is in me. Come and renew, come and cleanse, Lord. Come and give me your spirit. Jesus says, if we who are evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? What does the Holy Spirit do? He comes and he washes with renewal and restoration. The grace of God being poured out through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is the goodness of God. We need to set our hearts. We need to ask. But for that to happen, we need to know where we are. So let's stand and pray together tonight. Yes, Lord, Father, thank you that we can come before you tonight, Lord. And just come and proclaim firstly, Lord, and just state, Lord, how we are so, so dependent upon you, Lord. By human efforts, Lord, nothing worked, Father. You did not come and save us by works done from us in righteousness, Lord, like we just read. It's not our works of righteousness that causes salvation, Lord. It's not our willingness even, Lord. It's not even our commitment, Father. It's the grace of a loving God being poured out on sinful man. That is the gospel, Lord price so great, Lord, that we do not deserve, Father, that we will never comprehend, Lord. We will only realize that day when we see you face to face. And now even more and more we will stand that day, Lord. And I come and pray, Father, for every heart, Lord, that is tired of trying, that is tired of renewing, of saying this Monday, next morning, tonight, then I will study the word. Then I will start to pray. Then I will follow God. And I just come and pray, Lord, that that yoke of performance will be lifted. God is not calling you to perform for Him. He's asking you to open your eyes and to realize the beauty of Jesus Christ and the love of God on that cross for you. It's not about trying hard. It's just about realizing who Jesus is and what He has done for us. To come to that conclusion that Paul spoke about. Because we have realized that one has died. Therefore, all has died. 
the goodness of God poured out. My call to us tonight is not to make a new commitment, but just to simply bring an honest heart before a loving God and say, Lord, this is the condition of my heart, but you already know that. And to cry out to God so that He can come and fix what only He can come and fix, so that He can come and renew and restore what only He can come renew and restore. And to repent of us blaming the government or a leader or someone that needs to come and teach the Bible, that's not the problem. As we ask, Lord, let revival spring forth, but let it start here, Lord, in this heart, standing before you tonight. Just there where you're standing, won't you just lift up your voice to God? Just bring your heart before Him. He knows. It's many times difficult, and I know sometimes we don't even want to. We don't even want to start, but tell God that. Lord, I don't even want to pray right now. I don't even want to lift up my heart to you, Lord. I don't even know what to say. But then simply cry out like Peter as he was going down into that water. Lord, help. Lord, save. Lord, sanctify. Yes, Lord, as prayers are going up tonight, Lord, and hearts are being brought before you, Father. Thank you, Lord, that you come and say tonight, Lord, that condemnation is not of you. If you hear a voice right now that says God is not pleased with you and that he is shifting you aside, that is not the voice of God. That is not what we see in scripture. But we see a loving God saying that those who come to me, I will by no means show away. My arms are open wide. Come to the Father. And I ask, Lord, for every heart, Father, that prayed for renewal, that renewal will come. I prayed, Lord, for every heart that asked anew, Father, for you to fill them with your spirit, Father, that you will fill them with your spirit, Lord. As you say, Lord, it's your promise. If we pray according to your will, you hear us. And your will is that your children might know you and that we might receive the Spirit of God. And we pray, Lord, that the revival will start, but that it will start in our hearts. As we grow, Lord, in a deeper love for you, and walk in what you've called us to walk, with our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We thank you for your goodness, Lord, in Jesus' name.